Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we welcome Zach Bashak, founder of the Sled Island Music, Film, and Art Festival, and owner of Detroit Bikes. And how are things? Hey, uh, pleasure to join. Uh, things are good. That's good. Well, take me back to the early stages of Sled Island. What was the inspiration behind the festival, and where did you originally see it going? I was inspired by Pop Montreal. I, you know, I was pretty young and getting into the business side of music, and I took a trip out to Montreal and saw that festival and, and, and just thought it was such a great thing for the community. It was so fun to go to multiple venues in the same night and to kind of have the ability to choose my own adventure uh, based on the schedule. And I thought uh, that Calgary could really benefit from something like that. I owned Broken City at that point, and uh, which is a, a music venue in downtown Calgary. And uh, there were other little venues popping up all around, and I just thought it would be really fun to kind of connect them all and give people in Calgary the chance to have uh, a week of music in that format. Well, how did you originally choose the venues? Was it a conscious decision to put the bands in the venues that were underused, like the Legion? Or did this kind of just happen spontaneously? Well, I didn't really choose the venue. I mean, I just tried to get as many as I could. Any place that would have a band, I, I tried to put a band in there. And then I, I, did, I definitely, you know, tried to think about the band in that, space and what that experience was like like a, you know we, we got to work with a few churches and like a grizzly bear played in a in a church downtown and uh it just sounded so beautiful and they're such a perfect band for for that space their you know their voices echoing through that building just was a really great fit and there were other situations like that you know like well the legion's a great example seeing broken social scene get on stage at the legion you know and the legion happens to be a, a wonderful venue i mean it was built to to host parties and, you know, to have shows. It's got a great stage. Um, but it's a place that has so much character and it's so Calgarian that, uh, you know, it's just such a special building to be in and still run by, you know, really amazing people. So it was great that we were able to expose the youth of Calgary to a place that they probably otherwise wouldn't have gone to and, and to do it in a way that was kind of magical because it's, it's putting a band in there that's really amazing and it's... Uh, you know, it's um, sometimes, you know, those bands play places that are kind of more cavernous. Like you'll notice we never had a Sled Island show at Mac Hall because I think Mac Hall is terrible, you know, and, and it just wouldn't have been fun. You know, but that's the traditional kind of thought of like you go with the more established venues. But it was more fun for me to try to cram everything into downtown Calgary and, and find, you know, spaces that were fun to be in. Were there any places in Calgary that you would have liked to throw in a band into? Or pretty much anywhere that you thought of, you ended up putting a band in at some point? Well, I always loved the Calgary Tower from when I was a kid. And I, and I, we really tried to put a band in the Calgary Tower, but it's, it's not a... Not an easy, not an easy venue to make that work. In. But we ended up, we did get to do like our ticketing up in the Calgary Tower for one year, and I think we had a DJ up there. So eventually, the Calgary Tower dream was fulfilled. But uh, no, you know, I, I don't have any 
I'm trying to think if there were like think back to those days and like what venue I really always was trying to get into but couldn't. I don't I don't think there was one. Okay. Well right off the bat, were there any bands that you were trying to acquire, regardless of whether they would actually agree to play the festival or not? Yeah, I always wanted MGMT to come play because I thought they were cool. <laughs> Probably I thought it would be cool to hang out with them. Um, uh, so I always tried to take a run at them. And, you know, the way that it works is that you've got the, these kind of entertainment management companies. And if they're, you know, one of the bands on that in that company's roster is a band you're trying to get, then they might offer you some other band. So there was a one year where one of the bands we got was a band called Minus the Bear. And I didn't really know much about them or care for them, but I just really wanted to get a band that was on the William Morris Agency's roster in the hopes that, you know, if we treated them well and they enjoyed the experience, they'd report back that we were good and we could kind of break in there and eventually get MGMT or some of the other kind of bigger name bands that they had. But of course, I had at that point already put together a board of directors and they, you know, for the, they, for the most part, didn't really know anything about booking. And um, so they were furious, you know, so I, particularly one board member was just so outraged that, uh, you know, that we had spent money on this band minus the bear because I guess he didn't like them. I, I didn't really know much about them, so I couldn't really justify it other than just that it was strategic bookings. But but anyway, so minus, minus the bear was my attempt at sort of the long game of booking and getting the, the festival to a point where it could bring these you know m- much larger acts and that was the direction it was going in for a while um i think it sort of has since shrunk a bit but um but that was sort of the the effort in that direction then the other one that i would bring up but well tom waits was always one i tried and that it's it's tough to book tom waits but it would have been really cool uh and then katie lang would have been really neat. I just think because so many of the bands at Flat Island were kind of more seen as like, you know, maybe hipster bands, if you want it to be, to sound derogatory toward youth, you might <laughs> say that. Um, but uh, but just, you know, kind of bands that younger people are into. But I I didn't think it needed to be seen that way. You know, like we, we kind of, it felt to me at times there was like a, a folk fest camp you know, especially with our provincial government, and uh, and I just wanted to to play in the same sandbox, you know, and, and have Sled Island be open to the same funding opportunities and grants. And I wanted also our audiences to realize that the musical taste was similar, and that both festivals were very good things for the city and for the for the province. And so I kind of thought it would be cool to have more of a someone who would traditionally headline a folk fest, but that would also be perfect, I thought, for Sled Island, because Katie Lang is just such a such an important Albertan and has done so much in the music business and is so powerful to see live. And I think ultimately that's what I tried to do with the bookings, you know, where although some of them were kind of more like, you know, strategic bookings or, you know, trying to balance out a festival or whatever. But for the most part, what I tried to do was just book bands that I knew were excellent live and could really move an audience. And uh, Katie Lang is sort of one of the best in the world at that. And if she happens to be from Alberta, you know, I think it's something that we should really all be quite proud of. All those of us who share that that heritage. Who were you the most proud of getting to play? 
Huh, that's a good question. I, I don't, I don't really, I don't know if I felt really particularly proud of like any particular names of bands who played. It, I guess I was kind of proud that I was able to get to a point with agents where they would send their bands to us, you know, where we weren't getting those. Because Calgary is a tough place to bring a band to because um, it's off the map. Like, it's it's a difficult place to get to. In Canada, we're familiar with Calgary, but a lot of Americans don't know where Calgary is, you know. And, and when they see it, it's like, it's not close to anywhere that they know of. So, like, how are you going to get your band from Vancouver to Calgary? Like, it's a nine-hour drive. It's uh so anyways, it's just a tough city sometimes. It's not really on the on the tour path. But that was a big goal of mine too, was to get Calgary on that to get Sled Island to be part of like a tour scene. That's how a lot of the summer festivals go. So we were kind of in the right spot with the to be to get Jazz Fest artists, like people who would be also playing, you know, Winnipeg or you know, Montreal. They there is sort of a route there. So that was a long term strategy too, was to try to get to get some crossover into that world because Calgary's Jazz Fest had gone belly up and um, there were some really incredible performers who who do the jazz circuit and kind of interesting crossover stuff can happen. But anyways, back to like proud moments. I, uh, I don't know. Yeah, like I, I guess I can't really answer that. Nothing jumps out to me particularly. I mean, there were some shows that I think were really special, like the Boredom's. Um, that was a band that I really don't think a lot of people had like a boredom CD in their collection. Um, but people just kind of had faith that it would be interesting and they came out and gosh, was it ever interesting? It was just a really special moment. You know, it was sort of where art becomes more than just the thing that it is. Um, and the boredoms definitely did that. That was an experience that, you know, those of us in that room shared, um, that, um, I think a lot of people were really moved by. And so that was just, it was, I, I, you know, I could say proud. I, I feel more kind of like I was honored to, to, to have been uh, there and to have played a role in that thing happening. I guess a similar show would be Wire at the Legion. You know, that night was just a, a night where you felt real excitement in people and in Calgary. And it's a city that sometimes feels not excited. It can, Calgary to me, at times I felt like it felt a little dead and especially downtown sometimes felt a little dead. There wasn't, there's not that buzz, you know, sometimes you go to cities and you feel electricity. Um, and Calgary often didn't. And, uh, and so I thought Sud Island was an opportunity to show that we have that, you know, electricity. We just need to tap into it. And that night of wires show, I mean, the city felt electric to me and I think it did to a lot of other people too. So that is, um, yeah, you know, yeah. I guess I, I guess I would feel proud to have been involved in um, uh, that feeling. I was at that wire show, and it was an electric feeling. So <laughs> I can contest to that. Yeah, it's just so nice, isn't it, to be around excitement for something, and especially as it relates to art and artistic expression that's about to happen, and you know it's going to be something, and then it is that, and you just all kind of buzz together you know it's really it's a really human experience and it's really special were there any favorite live shows like for you personally that happened in your in like the years that you were at sled 
Well, yeah, I mean, those two for sure. I think um, so. it's tough because I, I didn't really have an opportunity to enjoy Sled Island because I was always worried about, like, the lighting in the room, you know, or, like, um, whether the band, whether I had enough cash to pay the band or, you know, like, the, I'd be getting calls from a venue that the sound man didn't show up to or, and for the most part, I shouldn't blame our sound man. Our, our sound men were amazing. Calgary is blessed with a host of wonderful sound people. I shouldn't say sound man either. We have some great sound women. Um, but... Um, but anyways, uh, just, you know, all this to say, I was somewhat preoccupied during the production of the festival. So I don't have a ton of memories of like really enjoying, uh, shows, but I I have moments like I kind of would see shows like I was on a train, you know, I'd get little snippets. I'd see a song. There was one moment that grizzly bear moment was pretty special because the manager for grizzly bear, I've been talking to them about the show and, you know, probably just normal, you know, business stuff. But, and as I, she saw that I was about to leave and she came and grabbed me and she said, Zach, just, just wait, wait for, wait for another 10 minutes. And, and so I did. And, and he went into this song that just was so, so beautiful. And I was so happy that she, um, you know, asked me to, to wait and to see to to be present for that moment, so that that's a memory for sure. There's a there's a few. Like I said, it's kind of like like being on a train car. Like I've got snippets of Lisa Vizab or snippets of uh, RZA, snippets of uh, Quintron and Miss Pussycat. Um, uh, Dandy Lind was so amazing upstairs with the Legion. There, the nice thing is there's all these little moments too that were like there was only twelve people there. You know, and, and and I remember, you know, those 12 people and, and that we had that together. And I think that existed for a lot of people. Like, I think the, the festival really at its most special um, is is those is the bond that, that the people of Calgary who were fans of those bands got to have with each other for experiencing those moments in those, in those special, you know, circumstances. Would you say that you were happy with the growth of SLED while you were there? Did you ever see it growing to the size of something like South by Southwest? Or did you want to cap it, keep it at that certain indie level? Well, I mean, South by Southwest is pretty indie, but it's huge. Um, to be to be South by Southwest, you need political buy-in. And I don't know if SLED Island really ever got that. And I tried to do that. Um, by by getting a board and trying to put people on the board who I thought, um, you know, I guess had that capability, but we never really, I don't think ever really did. And so you can't, like, you can't get to be that big when people perceive you as like, it's going against the grain of what they want. I mean, the city council in Austin plays indie bands. Like they realize what, what that festival does for that city and they embrace it and they encourage it. And I felt like, you know, we didn't necessarily get shut down, but for sure the, for the early years, I mean, it was really hard. they made us do all, they, we had to jump through so many hoops just to exist. And then later on, you know, the funding model was pretty tricky. It was always an overly ambitious festival in that like, you know, if you're a conservative numbers person, you don't want to run a, 
a business that way, I guess. Um, it's just risky. You've got to, because you got to commit to all these artists and acts before you know how many tickets you're going to sell and what you're going to do with, with that ticket revenue. So, you know, it's tricky. I, I would have loved to have seen it grow more. I, I, I don't know. I was really burnt out though. Like by the place I got it to, I definitely felt ready to hand it over. I didn't really want to be involved anymore because it was just too tiring. It's so, it's really emotional too. For me, the festival was like, I've been talking a little bit about that electricity and that energy. It's, it's tough to go from planning that all out and being involved in so many details. And then while it's happening, like hustling, like crazy, like working till four in the morning, you know, and waking up at seven and getting back on it and just, all the emails and communications and just being the central point of this like wild thing, but that, you know, people are like having the time of their lives. Um, and then, and then it just all ends. And it, and it's just like really weird for me. It was, I mean, maybe other people would have a different reaction, but for me, I would feel really just like almost depressed, I guess, at the end of it. And I, I just knew I kind of had to get out of that cycle. Just this like huge, huge build up to this like explosion of energy and then nothing. And, uh, and so I, you know, I just really kind of wanted to, to, to hand it over. And at that point, it's not really about what I, what I want it to be anymore. It's about, you know, the, the new group and where they want to take it. Did you ever feel like Calgary just wasn't the place for Sled Island? It seems like the odds were somewhat stacked against you at some times. Well, I think Calgary for sure was the place for Sled Island. I mean, the reason it felt so great is that, it, like, just just like it was for an audience member, an amazing experience to have this like uh, great performance with twelve people at the, in the corner of you know the second floor of the Legion. Um, that's what the bands felt like playing it too. They're like, "Where the hell is Calgary, and why is this the best show I played in the last five years? And why are these audiences so amazing?" And Calgary always has had incredible audiences. Um, people in Calgary really appreciate um, a good show, a good band. And um, so in that regard, Calgary is the perfect place for it. It's, it's kind of like the North American equivalent of that corner second floor room of the Legion. Um, it's a place with great audiences and a lot of character. And, you know, when, when it's put together the right way, it's wonderful. I think where Calgary was tough is that Calgary tends to have a feeling of, you know, it's like, desire to be seen this desire to be considered world-class and um we've spent a lot of money trying to like you know develop that image uh i guess and uh it's sort of like a maybe i don't know there's like a strange cultural sense of like we're not being looked at enough or something and then um so what can happen is i think in terms of arts management it can be hard to to find really good people. I, I found that the trying to find someone to run the festival was what made what, what exposed Calgary is not the, not the best place for that. I, I found, I just, I, I had a hell of a time trying to find someone who could, who could run the thing. And, uh, I, I, I don't know where the festival's at now. I, I haven't really paid a lot of attention in the last years, but I mean, hopefully it's going well. Well, now that you're no longer with the festival, do you think your vision has been followed through with the new staff at all? I know that you weren't really keeping up with it, but do you have any resentment about leaving or signing it off to who you did or anything like that? 
Oh, for sure. You know, it didn't. It wasn't a smooth handoff. There, you know, um, one guy in particular who I kind of thought was a friend. I guess I looked up to him, and um, you know, he, I thought he had the leadership capabilities, and you know, was a good dude. Uh, and then he kind of, you know, I think he sort of arranged a kind of a stabbing in the back of me financially on on some debt that the festival had, and that hurt my feelings quite a bit. You know, not it's it's still ongoing. You know, it was done in this way where it was like, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get to that, we'll get to that. And I was saying, well, the fact that you haven't got to it is leaving me in a really bad position. So please get to it. Maybe like, yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. And then just still haven't. You know, and the years have gone on, and it's it's really put me in a bad spot. So that um, certainly is super disappointing, and and was, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, I felt emotional kind of about the festival at times. Uh, anyways, and so that for sure hurt hurt me really deeply and still does and I you know I don't know why someone would want to do that it wasn't it's not even a large amount of money it's for festival operations and it was just a debt that the festival was supposed to pay and agreed to pay but then didn't so anyways that that kind of sucks and that um is an ongoing regret in terms of the management though I mean I think that I think Maude and Sean are still involved and I think they're both really good um you know, Sean, I never worked with Maude, but um, but Sean, I worked with really closely, and he's a very special human being. I mean, he's a great guy, and um, and I think that the festival has always been really lucky to have him. And if he's still involved, I don't know if he's still involved, but if he is, you know, I, that's a guy who um, definitely knows how to make a make something special. Um, so, um, you know, in that, in that regard, I think the festival is probably in good shape. It's definitely felt like to me over the last few years, the spirit of you has kind of been lost. I think that kind of like deals with the schedule because the schedule back in the day was one of the most important elements of the festival. It captured lightning in a bottle on so many occasions. Can you take us through the early days of deciding that schedule? Yeah, it was so fun and it was really an artistic expression in itself because my booking style, although shocking to some, um, you know, because they would want to do it in a more conservative, like, you know, planned out way, it was pretty loose. Um, And so I basically just, because you don't know what bands are going to agree to play. And so you basically just have to send out tons of offers. So in the months leading up to the festival, I would be sending out thousands of offers to bands and waiting to see who would respond. And I'd keep the offer open for a month. And then they start, you know, you get the checks of the band starting to come. And then sometimes the bands, like later on, bands that were friends with each other would start to kind of plan out to come. And I'd get the agents saying, hey, well, bring this band too. And and I would. I'd let the agents have a lot of say in who I brought up because I had some really trusted relationships with with some agents, most, most, well, basically all of them were American. Um, the Canadian booking agents were, were tougher to deal with and they didn't have as interesting bands, um, to be honest. Um, so that was sort of a secret thing for me that was really helpful was just these good relationships with American agents, you know, with smaller agencies with interesting bands on them. And that I, to, to have that relationship, you kind of have to be willing to say, like, yeah, I'll, sure, I'll pay this band I've never heard of a thousand bucks because you're saying I should. And, and we'll just go with it and keep developing this relationship. And it's, you know, that it's risky, but that's how the thing got built to what it was. And, and so, 
risk, I guess. But so, yeah, leading into it, I would send out all these offers, and then you'd start to get the, the check marks back of who was coming. And then it was the real fun of building that schedule. And it, it was a really, like, it involved a lot of creativity. And that's part of what was so fun, like, just visualizing what that show was going to be like. You know, like the Bronx, the perfect bar for them was, uh, I forget the name of it now, but that bar down, you know, in a basement with a weird uh, ceiling, um, like the mirrored ceiling, yeah, putting, I mean, like, monotonics down there. It was, it was the original you know, distillery, no? The distillery, yeah, that's right. So, and like, like that, just imagining that was exciting, and then you know, it turned out to to be, you know, and so just trying to like figure out like, well, like monotonics playing Tubby Dog, like of course that was going to be incredible, you know. Monotonics are just, they're just the perfect bands to play a, a hot dog restaurant music venue, like they're they're crazy, and um, it was it was beautiful. Um, so, so yeah, just kind of imagining, you know, trying to visualize what the what the um, yeah what those shows would be like, and then put, and put it together. And I also really loved the idea of making people miss stuff, <laughs> which sounds really <laughs> awful, I guess. But um, but it's it, I wanted everyone to have a different adventure to talk about. So like, no, I didn't want anyone t- to have like easy choices. And I thought that was super fun. Like after the festival, hearing my friends tell me about shows they saw that the other friends didn't see, or like you know the man playing in someone's basement or whatever, but just that everyone got to have their own story, and those stories were all good. Like no one, no one necessarily felt like they missed out, um, but you, you all got a different a different glimpse of it. Like that to me was really kind of magic. When you were booking bands, how much did you have to adhere by um, CanCon standards? And was that a difficult thing to have to throw Canadian bands in when maybe you weren't feeling it that year and there wasn't like a big influx of new Canadian bands for that for that season? Well, no, there's no CanCon with the festival, so it didn't matter. And I didn't get a lot of pressure really to do that. But the thing is a lot, a big part of the festival for me was trying to support the local music scene too. Although that's a very hard thing to do. And you just end up having everyone hate you anyways, because for some reason guys and bands get pretty resentful sometimes, but uh, you know, uh, that was really the point of the festival too, was, was to create great experiences for audiences, but it was also to get, get our local scene kind of fired up. And, you know, that, that was really fun. Like pairing the local bands with the, the bands that they loved, you know, like these guys, I forget what band, but maybe a Zeta booth or something, but they were like huge fans of Mogwai and they, like, they got to hang out with Mogwai at the local bar and, um, Cat Power, uh, I forget, uh, Jamie Fuchs, I think, um, had a band, I forget the name, but they opened for Cat Power. And that was like a pretty special moment for them, uh, I think. Well, that's what they said. Um, and so, like th- those things were really part of the part of the fun. And it's not like when I knock the Canadian scene, I guess I'm not knocking the band so much as the Canadian music business is what I found pretty uh, un- like not exciting to work with. And that's just it's really because the like the bigger Canadian bands are on their like booked by the same people. And they they get into this circuit and they get a little overvalued for what they deliver. So like 
the quality of show is, uh, you know, pretty good, but they're being, you, you need to pay quite a bit more because their agent, um, you know, has a higher expectation because they're this Canadian band and they, you know, we, we're, we're going to be exposed to more of them, I guess. And so it's sort of like, it was just easier and more exciting to get, um, you know, to work with us agents at that time. So, but it's not that there weren't good Canadian bands. It's just, it's sort of like, like that mid-level Canadian touring band and dealing with their, their, the business side of that. That's what was not, um, you know, that's kind of the go-to. It's like what everyone in Canada is working on booking. And so the agents can kind of just charge whatever they want. Cause they've got this like, you know, group of promoters who, kind of ha- have to book that, you know, mid-level Canadian band. And and so, you know, it's just, it, it was just harder to deal with them. Um, but then, it, but the local scene was always really cool. And, you know, there was every year there was some really exciting, you know, local band or, you know, 10 exciting local bands. And then we had like, you know, the dudes played a great show at Sled Island. I think it took a couple years for me to break through. And that was partly because they were in that same like, you know, mid-level Canadian touring band and their management decided that they would, they would be better off playing like Virgin Fest, you know? <laughs> so they did and maybe they were, you know, but it sucked for us at the festival because we had thought they were playing and it was going to be really exciting. But then they, you know, they eventually did and, and, the, and it was a beautiful show, you know, they were, they're a perfect fit for Sled Island. Like, that's a band that really gets that sense of fun experiences and being there and, just, and you know, having a room buzz, you know. And so that was, um, you know, that was cool. But beyond that, there was always, like, you know, a couple friends who would put together some, like, uh, you know, like, band that would kind of be put together, like, just to play the festival or, you know, some new group of kids who no one had ever heard of before, but, like, I guess had been playing music up in their garage or something and then you kind of discover them so that that was a huge part of the fun was was the local content it just didn't need to be canadian content like you know from toronto coming in or something like it that it was stuff from calgary that was the canadian content that was exciting mm-hmm. well you talk about wanting to help the local scene do you feel like the presence of sled island impacted the art community within calgary in any way yeah, for sure. I mean, that was that was the goal, and I think it was a success. It um, it kind of changed, I think, people's sense of what was possible and what kind of person you could be in Calgary. You know, you didn't need to necessarily just listen to the music that other people listen to, and that seemed like the safe choice. You know, I, like it was. It kind of hopefully opened up the concept of like, hey, it's okay to go see a band you've never heard of, and you know, kind of trust the trust the process or trust the uh, you know the the event and you know find new stuff i think a lot of people got into new venues too like, like there were a bunch of people who got to go to places that they didn't they wouldn't have otherwise gone to and that's good for a scene too because it you know maybe you'll go there again um when it's not the festival and, and that that's supportive overall did you ever envision like a lot of the artists staying at just regular people's houses when you first started it? Was that something that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That was a big part of it for sure. That was part of the fun was that we couldn't afford to put these people up in hotels. So we would just get them to bunk up with, um, 
with like volunteers. And that was a concept I think that came from the Folk Fest people. The Folk Fest, I mean, sometimes I talk about the Folk Fest in a way that sounds like confrontational, and I apologize to any Folk Fest people who might be listening to this podcast for that. The Folk Fest was super helpful to Sled Island um, starting out. We, Johanna w- w- came over and did our volunteer coordination and brought a lot of concepts that were really helpful, and I'm pretty sure that was one of them. Um, and so... Uh, and, and boy, did it ever work and create some, you know, wonderful experiences, I think, for the bands and for the volunteers. Um, I think some real friendships were, were made that way. When you made the transition to Detroit to make bikes, can you tell us a little bit about that transition and what attracted you to Detroit? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, so I, you know, I was trying to get out of music in Calgary for a while and part of that pathway out I thought was politics I'd always long term wanted to be in politics and I ran for city council and got really you know passionate about it um, I did a lot of research I read a lot of policy documents I was really excited for the job and I was thinking about that type of change um, for me personally too um, and so when that didn't happen, you know, I, I, it's, I, I didn't, it's not like I left out of like anger or spite because I didn't win the election. I was, I'm really proud to this day of that campaign. I think it was a really strong campaign and I had an incredible team and the, just, you know, it's just such an honor to know that, uh, there were such good people who were helping me. Um, and they've continued on and done, done really good stuff in Alberta, um, and, and, you know, I think even outside of Alberta, some people have moved on to other places. But anyways, um, it was a great experience, and it was part of me wanting to do something different. And I just knew I knew I couldn't really, I just couldn't continue to do music stuff. Like, I didn't want to keep booking bands, and I didn't want to, I was losing my taste, I guess, in it. Um, there's a lot of sort of fashion to bands too like they're you know you can have bands that put on a great show and um and that feeling is really important and but that there's another side of that coin of like popularity and backbitiness and you know people wanting to be seen as cool or something and like there's a there's a really negative side to the music business too and um i guess i was having a hard time fighting that off and I just lost my passion a little bit um, for like being a promoter um, so uh, yeah I wanted something different and I knew that um, I guess probably I ultimately knew that I had to move to a different city really to, to be able to do that um, and so uh, Detroit you know was, was always interesting to me as a city I think to everybody it's interesting I mean Detroit is such an important place in North American history, but really world history. And then it's also, you know, f- so complicated and there's, um, you know, like there's real suffering here. And, you know, I'm interested in the causes of that and, and how to um, be part of, you know, a, making it better, I guess. Um, and so... You know, not that there's a lot I can 
do. I'm just a person, you know, but I, but I feel like living here and trying to be, you know, engaged in the community and um, starting a business here, especially a business that, um, you know, has a city name and it's in its name and um, is, is partly about, about the city um, has been really rewarding for me. I mean, Detroit has given me a ton of, of, uh, I guess, benefits. Um, it's a, it's an incredible city to live in. It's very, I mean, it has that electricity to it for sure. Especially, you know, when I first moved here. Um, but it still does. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just a great place. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot to do. There's a lot that needs to be done. And I feel like my company is having a positive impact on that. Why bikes though? Were you a bike guy growing up? No, I wasn't a bike guy. On my campaign, I wanted to talk about mobility. I think that one of the more important uh, facets of municipal political decision-making is relating to transportation. Uh, like, I think one of, you know, different levels of government make different types of decisions. Your, you know, your healthcare policy isn't decided at a civic level or your national defense, you know, like that, those are federal issues and there's provincial issues and municipal issues. So as I was thinking about what a city can do to have transformative change, one of the, one of the strongest areas in my mind is, is transportation. Because when we build our city for cars and we let our road planning department make the decisions that impact the, the function of our city, um, we've, we've seeded human space to automobile space and we've created a city of 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 sprawl for one and and what sprawl leads to is isolation you know little homes that you drive your car into your garage get into your house you know and you've got your your yard and and it's separate and distant and it's a life that doesn't have human connection you you watch tv with a screen you drive into work with your screen. It's not a life that I think is is good for humans, really. And maybe that sounds uh, judgmental, um, you know. But I just I I think that if you know from a city planning level, you want to get people together. You want people. To, I mean, the the joy of a city is that there's a lot of experiences and a lot of opportunity to meet people and share ideas and build society to a, a better place. And that's when cities are strong and, and powerful. And uh, and I think if you build cities to, to drive isolation, you you miss out on a great opportunity. So, I, you know, that's a big, really big picture way of looking at it. But, um, but, but basically, uh, bikes are like an antidote to that. Bikes, cities where you get around on a bike are cities where you interact with your local community, you can hop off your bike and buy an ice cream, you know, when you probably wouldn't have if you were driving by. Um, your the store doesn't have a parking lot in front of it because it doesn't need one because it's not a city built for cars. Um, so you can the storefront is like on the street with people, and you know, it's a lot of urban planning talks about that. So I was reading Jane Jacobs' books and. Um, comparing that with policy and also you know i've been lucky in my life to travel a fair bit and i was just thinking about you know i I like to just sort of think about that when i'm in a city like why why is this so good right now like what is it about this place that they've managed to make it quite nice 
and you, usually when I'm in a place where I think, why isn't this so nice? It, it has to do with the fact that, like, you know, like when you're walking around those sidewalks in downtown Calgary, it feels like a car's about to hit you at any moment. Um, that it, it feels like you're doing something wrong by being on foot, and that's what needs to change. And so you you get that change by giving people other ways to move around. And it's not just bikes, but bikes are a big part of it. And then you know, so for bikes with Detroit, it's kind of cool that Detroit's Motor City, but the future of transportation, in my mind, is a little more human-powered, and it's kind of fun. Like, it's a fun contradiction, I guess, to make bikes here. Um, but it's something I feel good about. Like, I, I could have entered a bit. I, for, when I was young, I was really good at trading stocks. And I probably could have been a great financial analyst. I could have had a life on Wall Street or something. Uh, but I would have felt, I think, pretty empty as a person to have just, you know, bet on companies and and uh, made money that way. Like, I, it just doesn't feel right. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm a lucky person. I came from a family with some means, and I had an opportunity to be able to to try something as difficult as this has been. And I felt like I felt an obligation to do so because I had the capability to do so. So I wanted to, you know, if Detroit needs jobs, let's build a company that can potentially hire a bunch of people. And, you know, if if I think, you know, part of the reason that Detroit is where it is, I mean, there's so many factors to it, but one of the reasons is has to do with, um, you know, how, how we don't make stuff anymore. Well, why not start a business that makes stuff and like put my energy towards trying to make it popular to buy something that's made locally um, and that, that, that beyond just like food products, but like that we can actually do that with consumer goods. It's kind of cool. So like I feel a daily um, sense of purpose through this company and I feel good about myself and what I'm doing with my life. So, if, you know, I, that, I guess ultimately that's really what it is. It's a, it's the satisfaction of knowing that I'm doing something difficult, but that I find important. Have you ever thought about getting into uh, politics in Detroit? Yeah, definitely. So there's limitations on what I can do. I'm still a Canadian citizen. I was supposed to get my dual citizenship a couple months ago, or yeah, it was. I think it's been a couple months now. Um, but the but the virus uh, situation we're in right now uh, shut down that. So um, that's delayed. But anyways, I, I'm limited in what I can do politically here. Um, but long-term, for sure, I, I still am interested. I, I had a great trip to Washington, um, like D- Washington, D.C., about maybe a, maybe half a year ago now. And I met with a bunch of people, like really interesting people, including a bunch of Congress folks um, and like at their offices. Normally, I think people hire a lobbyist and then they go like door to door. I saw a lot of people like being brought, like taken around by their lobbyist. But I just contacted these people myself, and uh, and I was amazed at the at the accessibility. I mean, it's it, it it was really inspiring about government. It was kind of frightening in a way because like I was just walking into these capital buildings, like going into people's offices and having these meetings, and um, it it, it almost felt like. Uh, too easy or something but nonetheless um i had this incredible experience and so i've been you know i've been interfacing with the federal government here more and in sort of different sides of it a, a lot of what i do right now contemplates china and u.s chinese relations 
I've spent a lot of time in China. I have a 10-year Chinese travel visa that, that I'm able to go to China regularly. Um, I have um, a business relationship with a Chinese. Uh, I would consider him a business partner at this point in, in that he uh, is my sourcing agent, but we do other things together and, you know, you, we visit each other and we talk, you know, once a day, you know, pretty much. So, um, you know, there's a lot of China U.S. stuff, and, and then U.S. federal policy. Uh, there's well, there's a lot of a lot of consideration for China and the relationship of the United States and China going forward. And I happen to kind of be in an interesting um, spot in that because my company right now is the largest bicycle manufacturer in America. Um, we make up over 50% of this industry, and that allows me to, like, if I can individually represent more than 50% of an industry, um, that gives me a lot of um, tools, I guess, and political tools. Um, and it also makes for a compelling story. I think the story of Detroit Bikes kind of, it, um, it opens a lot of doors, too. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing that I've been doing here. Um, so, uh, it, it, it is it is sort of you know I, I felt like I had built a ramp into politics in Calgary and then I I unfortunately had to kind of abandon that ramp um, but now I've sort of built another ramp I think here in the US into American politics it's just a slow steady uh, climb and also I think in political in politics too you've got to kind of be called to it so I don't want to necessarily force the issue I, you know, if, if there comes a time where it seems right, then, then I'd love to get involved as like a, as a candidate of some kind. But until then, I'm happy to just sort of be in the background and, you know, go to fundraisers and have conversations with politicians and just be around, you know. With all the polarization in North America in politics, do you see like any optimism in the, in the future? Well, yeah, there's always optimism. There's always some good things happening. Um, you know, society is relatively safe. Um, there are good things that are being developed and worked on. Um, but you're right to ask that in that um, it's pretty polar. It's like everything's political. I'm I'm really disappointed that like this the virus is political. Like it's a it's a pandemic. How how is it a political question for people? How do we have a, a a Democrat and a Republican response to a, a pandemic, you know, but there is one. And so that, that's frustrating. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I think that, I think a, a lot of good stuff can, is still out there to, to come. And I do, I think that the American government, like I was saying, is pretty interesting. It's pretty accessible. Um, I don't think it's going to be as broken as it might seem from the outside. Um, I really do think my my whole thing is probably education. I think I think that an issue that we're facing is that Democrats and Republicans alike haven't really focused on national education policy the way that that they should have, you know, especially through the '90s. And we have a society of people who don't know how to get news and, and don't know how to analyze um, a, an argument, and, and just it's it's turning pretty tribal. And uh, I think that education would be the way to address that. Um, so 
So that, that you know, if I do kind of get more involved politically, that's probably where. And I've started to a little bit here in Detroit, too. I, um, I've been more active with the local uh, Detroit school district. I joined a board um, of a fundraising arm for the for the district, but uh, but I'm trying to kind of get more more active there. What kind of impact has COVID nineteen had on Detroit bikes? Well, I feel like a bit of a jerk for saying this, but it's it's been good uh, to Detroit bikes, and I'm sorry for all those businesses who have suffered, including my business partners in Calgary with Brooklyn City. Um, uh, but uh, are you still a co owner? Yep, I am. But, uh, but uh, yeah, it, for some reason, um, the virus has made everybody in America want a bike all of a sudden, and and we've we've sold out of most of our. I mean, I was sitting on a lot of inventory. Luckily, uh, although not you know not the best maybe business decision to have had so much inventory around, but we had a lot. We we sold out of like most of it. And, yeah, it's good to see. I mean, people are really embracing cycling. Partly they're probably just kind of bored and want to get out of the house. But I think there's something a little more to it as well. I think there's something kind of comforting about cycling for people. It can bring you some joy. You know, it's nice to have your body move, and cycling is a great way to do it. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's been, it's been pretty good. It's good to see people are embracing cycling. To circle back to music... Uh, what's the music scene like in Detroit compared to the one in Calgary? Well, I didn't really engage with the music scene in Detroit uh, when I got here. Um, I didn't want to, I guess, you know, this is maybe a bit blunt, but I kind of got tired of musicians. And I think that there was some, I, you know, there's some stuff on Facebook and uh, just with like some musicians in Calgary. And I kind of just got... I started to to just not like I couldn't handle being around musicians for a while. I'm 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 getting over it, <laughs> but um, but uh, but I just didn't really want to. I I, I mean I, I I don't know. I didn't engage with the music scene here. Now I I have a, a bit of a sense of it. It's pretty it's pretty vast. There are um, Detroit's huge. It's it's a physically it's a huge space. There's also over five hundred people here. And so within that, there's pockets of interest musically. So there's like, you know, I'm sure there's like a hardcore scene and a goth scene and stuff that are all distant from each other, I think. There's, it's not, it's not as integrated. But I think a lot of what happens with the music scene is it comes out of the venues. And it's the people in the venues that are really um, probably driving kind of how that conversation goes to some degree. And so, uh, you know, Detroit does have some good music venues, and we've got a great music history here. And there are, like, for example, Wire always draws really well in Detroit. And so, and, and that's because people here really dig, dig deep and know know about, like, not just the bands that are popular, but also the ones that, like, influence those bands. And people are really into, like, the history of sound and, and all that. And... uh so it's, it's a good scene, you know, I, I think from the outside. I don't I don't know it kind of intimately. So. Looking past COVID-19, do you see the state of the music industry drastically changing? Or do you think it was changing before the pandemic even happened? 
It's a good question. I I think that a lot of things are going to change after this, but I don't know how. I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what the future is going to look like with this. I I mean, I don't know. Is there going to be another virus? You know, are we going to be facing more and more viruses? It, it, you know, it's, I, it's really hard to predict the future. I don't know. Well, if you were working at a festival now, are there any artists that you would be trying to get to play? You mean, like, in the face of the virus? Well, no, or... just like if if you were to start a festival in Detroit or anywhere right now, is there, like, any newer artists that have really blown you away as of late? No. No. I've been learning piano myself, so... <laughs> If I started some festival now, it would be really bad, and it would just be me headlining, and uh, and we'd see who'd want to show up. I, hey, I I'm, would love I'm enjoying to show kind up of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, get me on Zoom after a couple of drinks, and I'll probably play you some Adele. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, been doing, I've been doing that for friends lately. Uh, it's pretty fun. I've been trying to host like sing-alongs on Zoom. So I'll like whatever sad British pop song I'm learning that week. I'll like uh, see if I have a friend who's willing to sing it, and then uh, and then I'll play along and they and they can sing. Is that just your so that's kind of the, the sad British pop songs? <laughs> it seems to be yeah. Like I don't know why I'm playing like Coldplay and Radiohead and Adele. Um, but I you know it's just th- those are those are really those are songs I'm playing because they have prominent piano um, and it's they're kind of easier easy to learn so it's part of just kind of learning but it's my you know they're emotive and uh, and they're recognizable so there's something kind of joyful about being able to play them um, but yeah my experience with music is less about like hey this is a fresh new band and it's more like I'm just enjoying like, playing music and experiencing it and I like um I really like the idea of like the living room sing along, and um, I just had it was just really joyful to get some friends together on the computer, you know, and and have them singing while you know while I'm playing, and I would like to do more of that. Well, was there ever a whole I like it when I like it when music something that you you know it's not so much about consumption. Like that was something that kind of always got under my skin. There'd be like some some like arts beat reporter. Who would be would be like like who are like who who are you listening to right now? And I knew what they wanted me to do was like give some list that like showed off how cool I was. You know, like I think a lot of people around music kind of that's why like they they just want to be they want to be seen as cool in a, in a social group, and that and it sucks. You know, like I and so I didn't I, I sometimes tried to like give stupid answers to that or you know or dodge it or whatever, but like I. I don't think music is its best when it's just about consumption and it's just about like fashion. Like this, this is what I'm consuming to prove that I'm cool and I'm part of a good club of people. It should be about what moves you and what moves you together as people. And it should be, yeah, again, like that human experience. So, um, so yeah, great to go out and see a show. And if someone like, you know, says they're good or whatever, and it is, that's fun. Um, but it's not uh, its not where I really think music is it's, that it's best for me. I think for me, it's at its best when I'm playing it and participating in, in it. And I, like, I've got two sons now, and I can't wait. 
I really can't wait for them to be able to play instruments if they want to. I mean, I hope they do. I think they will. But just to, to the idea to play some music with my kids uh, is that's that. Like, if I'm thinking about music that I want to experience, that's that's where I'm I'm heading to probably. Well, last question was: What was the biggest holy shit moment in your career? Like, a, was there a custom bike order? getting to meet somebody politically, a certain band or artist that you got to work with. Just what, what is that one moment? Huh. I don't know. There's been a lot, you know, I'm, I'm, I've had a really fortunate life and I've, you know, I've had a lot of great experiences that have been, um, been dramatic for me. So it's really hard to kind of pick one, I guess. Um, I don't know. Yeah, no, nothing. There's no one thing that jumps out as that. Um, I, I mean, I guess as you said, like bike stuff. That first payment I got from New Belgium Brewery was great. You know, you see a check with a bunch of numbers on it. Um, <laughs> I hate, I hate that it's a financial thing. It sounds so callous, but at the same time, you know, that's that's what running a business involves. And uh, to me, it was you know, it's a, it was a payment, but it was also a real sign of support from a big entity. And it was, you know, it's not them. It wasn't like them giving me money. It was them buying a product that I had to then go make. And they bought a ton of them. They bought like 5,000 bikes from me. And that was, uh, you know, for Detroit bikes, that was our, you know, our our first opportunity to be a real company. And so, uh, you know, I'm always, I always have very strong feelings for new Belgium brewery. Um, <laughs> great note to end this on. I'm, I'm a show. I'm a show for a beer company. But anyways, yeah, that that was a great moment. So that that pops out. Well, I like to thank you so so much. This means everything that you decided to come on here. So thank you again. Hey, my pleasure. It's a, it's been fun talking at you. I, I a pretty one way <laughs> conversation. But but anyways, maybe we'll talk again, and I can ask you some questions. All right. That sounds fantastic. Well, thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Zach once again for taking the time to sit down with me and chat tonight. Make sure to head on over to DetroitBikes.com and keep up with all things Zach. This concludes our broadcast day.